welcome to Let's Talk About Tech. Today with me is Daniel Horak, one of the most seasoned entrepreneurs here in Austria, and he's in crowd investing today. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for the invitation. Great to have you here. What is your entrepreneurial story? What's the backstory that you never told? Why did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Well, to be honest, I never decided. <laughs> it, it happened by accident, uh, to be super honest, because um, back then at school, I had a friend of mine, he was developing software. And we ended up in talking about the solution, what he was trying to, to create that happened like 15, 16 years ago. And what he developed were, were chatbots. Um, I can remember, that's quite a while ago. Yeah. And it maybe was a bit too early afterwards, to, to, to be bluntly honest, but, but back then we thought it's a great idea. And we applied for an accelerator program. And all of the sudden, uh, we were entrepreneurs because they said, okay, you have to found a company, you have to write a business plan. And we were completely overwhelmed. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a fast track on becoming an entrepreneur. Um, we ended up in learning a lot that it's not a great idea to develop your uh, solution in a garage without ever talking to customers. Um, so yeah, finally we closed, we shut it down, learned a lot, um, decided to move on for several years onto the dark side, uh, which I call my time at the, at the large corporate. Learned a lot on the on the corporate side. Uh, did some consultancy, and yeah, ten almost eleven years ago, I've started uh, Conda, and the first failure brought a lot of experience to me and to to starting the new company, to make it possible even though to found something like Conda because, um, yeah, I've never learned anything about starting a company uh, at a university so. That fast track was super, super good to start it. There's always this criticism that we don't have a culture of failure in Europe. Did you experience that? How did, how did investors, early investors, perceive your history with a company you started, didn't work out? You learned a lot, but did they back you right away or did you, hard time, did you have a hard time to convince the seed investors? Honestly, I think for raising money for Conda, it was a pro argument. Back then, then when we failed, it was really hard time uh, for us on a personal level because nobody wants to fail. And for us, it was a lot of personal failure. And my co-founder, Gregor, and me, I think we didn't speak for like four, five years because everyone was blaming the others. So even though we missed the culture of failure because we always wanted to blame someone, um, but to be honest, uh, we fucked up together. Um, that's what we learned afterwards. And now we're friends again. Uh, but yeah, that's something I think for, for Conda, it was a pro argument back then. It was hard. It was even though hard also for my family, because if you tell your mom with 20, okay, I'm going to start a company. She was like, oh my God, please, no, please do something else. So that was, that was hard time, especially when we failed. Um, nevertheless, looking back, it was one of the best decisions. And to be honest, I think one of the main reasons we failed was back then because we were too, we avoided to, to make real risk and to get real into the risky side. We always thought, okay, do it small, do it simple, take your time. And we failed uh, at that point on really taking risk and going all in. I think that was one of the main reasons 15 years ago why we failed. And then your mother learned that you started a new company. And I can, I, I can imagine she was excited. 
Well, let's say she got into that because the funny story about that is, I think five years ago, six years ago, Karen, she was she was part of Conda even though we, before we started. Now she's our chief marketing officer. She got pregnant and we needed someone to help us during her absence. And my mom back then, she, she uh, got out of her last job and I was like, you have to join us. You're, you did marketing the last 30 years. Now you're now working for Conda. And then she realized how startup life works. And I think for the first weeks, she was every Saturday, every Sunday, she was like, how can you even survive? <laughs> I know the bank statement. <laughs> I know how your liquidity looks like. So five, six years ago, she was uh, learning the hard way what it means to be an entrepreneur. But still, uh, we managed to pay her a salary and she loved it afterwards. And she's now also part of the Conda family. So yeah, it was a good and fun way to get her into the mood of entrepreneurship. And now she feels super comfortable. I never thought of Conda as a family business. <laughs> but one thing that I know, and uh, I mean, we have met each other quite a while ago. Uh, which was a quite funny start. I'm pretty sure nobody actually has ever heard the story. Um, now, there is some history, right? If you look at Conda today, crowd investing, the topic itself, it sounds a little bit late to the party, but you were at the forefront. You were a little bit early, actually, in the market, built the company, sold it, bought it back, now restarted it. And apparently now, I think your core management team is all, are all shareholders, right? So you learned again something in, in this development phase of your company? Yeah, definitely. So um, as you said, we started almost 11 years ago. That's where we met. That's where I first, I think you were one of the first ones who, uh, to whom I pitched Conda. And I think you were destroying the idea at the very first pitch. And I got back to my co-founder and said, Paul, I think we should think again in doing this. Um, so yeah, definitely back then it was kind of too early because your arguments were, there is no trust in online platforms. Nobody needs that kind of financing through, uh, through a platform. There is a small market because back then we only financed startups. Um, we were only able to raise 100,000 euros. So there were a lot of arguments where you were right about it. But in our way of thinking, we were, we were sure that something will change. And that's what happened now is that there is a lot of... A uh, lot of... Uh, different frameworks in place, there's law which is in place. So it got more and more common to use the crowd as one part of your financing strategy. Back then, I agree, maybe it was a stupid idea, uh, but very often stupid ideas turn out to be good ideas. And that's also part of the journey. But yeah, as you said, it was, as many refer, a real roller coaster the last 10 years. And I'm glad that we had the opportunity to buy Conda back and now to lead it into the next stage of the company. I must admit, I was terribly wrong back then, right? <laughs> and what, one, one of the quotes that I really like by Alex, Alex from uh, Frankenberg, from Hightech Gründerfonds yeah. in Germany, um, every time I see him on stage, he always puts this quote, right? He says, if you entrepreneurs get rejected from everyone around you, there is a great chance that you really are working on something disruptive. A chance. It's not a guarantee, right? And uh, I actually love it when I'm wrong, right? <laughs> um, and when I can admit that, because it's those entrepreneurs that are stubbornly believing that there is a change happening and that you want to drive this change. Now, with this EU regulation that you just mentioned, your offering goes all across Europe, I've understood. 
So how much are you allowed to raise? How does the placement work? And how does the model work? Do you have then a thousand of investors on the cap table or can you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, sure. So back then, the vision was to create the European platform. That's, that was what it was all about because we were, we were aware that Austria is a too small country. Some other famous people said before. Um, so we were sure that, that the European market needs new ways of funding. So that's something what, what we were sure. And what happened a bit slower than we, than we thought is that this European uh, regulation got into place. So, so it took almost 10 years from the beginning to the end where it was launched last year. And the new regulation has a few things which are super important. On the one hand side, it's regulated by the financial market authority. So it's a licensed uh, business. So we had to apply through the financial market authority. We did this in Austria, but you can uh, get the license by every regulator within the European Union. We applied there. We got through the application process. We had a fit and proper interview and everything. So now we are regulated financial institute. That's something super important because it, it professionalizes the whole industry, the whole market. So that's one thing. And it's also an entry barrier for competitors. Definitely. So it kind of secures your business case. Yeah, exactly. And, and to, to, to ju just give you numbers, before that regulation, there were more than 600 platforms in place um, all over Europe. Now they are close to 40, which got the regulation and 80 uh, 38 of them are doing real estate crowdfunding. So there are just two or three in all over Europe, which do startup and small and medium enterprise funding. So it's really a market advantage that we are in the market. The other advantage is that we are there for such a long time. So we've proven also to the regulator that what we are doing is something uh, what we're good at. So it's regulated. The second thing is it scales up the volume which you can raise uh, for a company up to 5 million euros per year uh, without the prospectus. So it gets more and more attractive, not only for startup, startups, but as well as for scale-ups, for small and medium enterprises. So that's another change. The other change is we can use regulated instruments. So it's it, we use all kinds of securities, uh, which also makes it more applicable for more professional investors. So that's also a hypothesis what we have, that it gets more and more attractive for um, institutional, semi-institutional investors, because if you have something which is regulated on a European level, it's much easier for them to get it into their portfolio. Mm -hmm. And the last part, which is super important, is that there's one standard for investors protection. So you have to get a questionnaire from all investors if that part, if that instruments fit to their risk appetite, that they can, that they can risk that amount of money. So there are limits of the investment amount. So there is a strong investor protection system and transparency system in place, which comes with that license. And so the good thing is it really levels up everything about crowd investing into new level where it gets more and more professionalized. And that's something what we thought back then will come into the market, took a bit longer, uh, but yeah, now it's there and it's a huge opportunity for us. Yeah. you mean Europe is on fast track, right? Yeah. Doing, doing a new regulation in 10 years is almost the speed of light. Um, how does it practically work? So if I have a startup and um, let's say I have a lead investor, um, would then the lead investor come to you and say, hey, um, as, a, as, as a means of leverage, uh, it's a B2C case. I want to also place it on the platform. Or would the startup come first? 
And then after a crowd campaign ran, do I have then a thousand investors on my cap table or is it pooled and you manage that? Yeah. Um, so the last eight years, I would say the usual way was startups try to get every source of funding they, there, was, there was access to. So usually they got to us. For the last one and a half years, two years since Corona, where the funding volume started dropping and where it gets more and more difficult for follow-up rounds, we got more and more companies which come to us through their investors. Because what happens quite often is that there is, for example, a bridge round or there is uh, a, a round which is not fully committed and where is like a 500k, a million euros, which is still open which they want to fill. And that's, that's the sweet spot because then, then there are the terms are set. You have some lead investors on board and everything. So that's something which gets more and more popular. And that's where we currently um, emphasize investors to invest together with us. Um, regarding the cap table, in the past, we had the challenge to use subordinated loan because that was the only framework which was feasible and allowed by the regulators in Austria and Germany, for example. Um, with the new regulation, there's also the possibility to use uh, a pooling vehicles, so a special purpose vehicle, which pools the investors and then, and then just the SPV buys a share of the company and only the SPV is going to be the shareholder. So there's just a one-on-one relationship between SPV and the, and the target and the investors are pooled in that SPV and that is ad- administrated by us. So it's like a co-investor period. Mm-hmm. So it gets much easier with that new regulation to join existing rounds um, of investors, of angel investors, of VCs, where you just have that SPV joining the round. And those SPVs that you manage, you manage actively also in the company or are you just um, on the reporting side covering the rights for your LPs and pretty much let the leads do what they do. Exactly. It's more, it's, it's, it's a passive investment. That's also uh, what, what our investors are aware because on average they invest 2000 euros. So they know that their, their main rights are their, their basic reporting rights. And then there is the, there is the ongoing active uh, management by the lead investors, but we are from the SPV side and from the investor side, it's more passive. Uh, investment. Nevertheless, what we always recommend to the companies, to the startups is use the crowd as your active multipliers. Because if you have several hundred users, which are also also your investors, you can leverage them. They're they're brand ambassadors, they're super multipliers. So that's a huge power and a huge force, which is more than maybe other active investors have. Because if you have three, four angels on board, they have their expertise but they are not three, 400 people which can use, which can be used as a strong uh, leverage also from a marketing perspective. Yeah, the power of the small crowd is what we experience in European Super Angels Club as well. With our syndication funds, there's always a group of investors together investing in a company and exactly that happens, right? Everybody within their networks is leveraging the idea, is speaking about it, and that obviously has a higher impact if you have a big group. Um, I'm excited that uh, we also uh, are working with Conda in European Super Angels Club uh, in this. And I've learned there's many other corporates and uh, initiatives where you basically also just apply your technology. So there's not only your own platform, but this business to business um, field has been growing the last years. Yeah, well, it's funny. 
because you asked, okay, what was the evolution? And I think one of the biggest evolutions of Conda was when we started, um, Paul and me, we both came from consultancy. So our first hypothesis was that we are building like a new corporate finance consultancy and there is a platform. So for us, the platform was more the addition to our core mm-hmm. business consultancy. Ending in, we have a platform, we have a platform, we have a platform, and we do not do any consultancy, which was mm-hmm. kind of a complete pivot. But that's something what we've learned and what we've also learned from feedbacks of companies which used our platform was that at some point, if those companies have their own crowd, if those companies have a series of fundings which they want to to do through such a platform, that they want to run their platform on their own, but they do not have the expertise on doing the whole background of the platform which is necessary. They always know, okay, I have a great brand, I have a great community, but they have no clue about regulation and no clue about tech. And that's what we're providing with our white label services is exactly we provide tech. So the whole platform on you on, on building a platform which is highly regulated and using the crowd or club deals as investors. And for some others, we also provide the license in operating that platform from a legal perspective. So you mm-hmm. can have just tech or a fully fledged, completely managed platform. And with those different services, we have a lot of various clients. So as you said, there's large corporate, like for example, Salzburg AG, which is an energy provider, um, which use it for um, uh, sustainable energy projects where the crowd can invest into photovoltaic and everything. It's kind of like a means of public engagement, right? Exactly. It's, a, it's a state-owned company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, the, but there it, it's mainly about getting acceptance in the broad range of um, people in that area that they, they hate having a... a a PV or a wind wheel in front of their house, but if they can earn money with that, they will be okay with having that in front of their yard. So that's that's one reason. There is there is a large hotel chain which use it for regular uh, of a regular basis fundraising as part of the corporate finance strategy. So there's a broad range mm. of uh, applications for that platform. Maybe my family gets invited for a hotel trip. So I just mentioned Farkenstein. I'm a big fan of the hotel group. Excellent, excellent places around the world. Um, maybe to come to an end, um, the future, right? I mean, you obviously have this, this skill to look in the glass bulb and, and, and envision the future, right? Right? Um, how about tokenized assets and exchanges of tokenized assets in the means of securities? Is this a market that really comes? Is it a hype? What is your personal perspective? Well, I think, and and in 2018, we did the first tokenizations in, in, in Austria. So we were one of the first ones in, in Europe, which did tokenization for a stock company. So we tokenized all assets of the company. Um, and back then in 2018, everyone was, was going crazy about the opportunities and everyone also was going crazy about, okay, they're going to be exchanges and blah, 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 la di da. Um, five years later, there are almost no exchanges, there's almost no liquidity in the market. And to be very honest, I think the technology and the chances in optimization, in lowering costs, in making intangible assets or intransferable assets transferable, it's a huge opportunity. But what we've learned from a broad range of investors on our platform is 
that they don't care about tech. Mm -hmm. They care about the solution which we can provide. And that's something what we've learned a lot is that through all these hypes of ICOs and, and tokenization and security token offerings and blockchain and la-di-da, it completely got mixed up and people can't, so the broad range of investors, experts for sure, but the broad range of investors, and we have retail investors, so we have a broad range of investors. They do not differ between Bitcoin, security tokens, it's, it's crypto. Mm -hmm. And what we've learned is that the only thing they, they, are, uh, they are aware of, and that's, that's uh, important to them, is what problem can I solve? And the problem I want to solve is, okay, it's easy transferable, you can sell it, you can buy it. It, may, it reduces the cost for you. So that's what, the, what they care about. So I believe the technology is a huge opportunity. Nevertheless, I think it's completely overstated in talking about, I don't know, the future and blah, blah, blah. I think for the investors, the only thing they want to have is they want to have it as easy as possible. And they don't care if it's blockchain or any other uh, um, database. And in, in the end, what you're saying is, there might be in the future a way to trade the assets which are currently illiquid also if you're crowd invested in a certain company and this trading needs liquidity. So we could envision that Condor will in one day might have a license for a multilateral trading platform. In the future, at some point, that might be the case. The good thing also about the new regulation is one part of the regulation is the so-called um, black boards so we are allowed with that regulation in the future if we apply for that part as well to create a blackboard where at least investors which want to sell and investors which want to buy could meet and exchange uh offers kind of like an ebay exactly. billboard. yeah we, okay. we are not allowed to build prices and everything but at least uh supply and demand could be matched for sure in the future one next step could be something uh like an mtf Nevertheless, and I think that's something what always gets forgotten in the discussion is you have to have a strong uh, initial market with hundreds of millions of assets in the market. And then you have the demand of others on buying. So you need to have market makers and everything in the market before you think of buying and selling and creating a secondary market because there are currently some markets but there, I think the trading volume per month is several thousand euros. So mm. who cares about such trading volume? Right. And there's no liquidity and obviously no trade. Exactly. It was a pleasure talking with you, Daniel. As always, this could go on for hours. <laughs> Great having you. Thanks a lot for watching us. And uh, please don't forget to subscribe to our channel. We look forward to our next session. <laughs>